This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Ezra, this is my new mission in life, which is to try and fix the mechanics of our government so it can actually deliver to us. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I first had Andrew Yang on the podcast back in August of 2018, which <laughs> feels like forever ago. Uh, But I've known Andrew a lot longer. I knew him back when he ran something called Venture for America, which was trying to build on the Teach for America model to push young graduates of top schools to go do startups and small businesses in communities that had not been part of the huge wealth inequality in America, right? Go, go, Go start things in the middle of the country. That was a super fascinating guy then. And then when he ran for president, I thought it was interesting, did not expect all that much to come of it. But he did, a, I think, a really remarkable job. He pushed ideas out into the mainstream that weren't there. And he modeled a kind of political decency. And oftentimes in the debate, in a way, I appreciated a quizzicalness. You, you could see him sitting there thinking, like, this is how we do it. <laughs> this is what it looks like. Um that I always thought was valuable and refreshing. Uh, when Andrew was on the podcast last time, we debated a bunch about AI and what it would do to the economy um, and whether or not a UBI would be the right solution, uh, a universal basic income would be the right solution, even if AI did upend the economy. Uh, but a couple of years later, we are living through a very different kind of economic upheaval. Um, Andrew Yang is no longer a presidential candidate, though he did speak at the DNC and made some interesting points there that we talk about. He's now part of a group, founded a group called Humanity Forward, which is trying to pilot universal basic income on a small scale. As he reveals in this show, he is uh, thinking about or talking with the Biden folks about taking a role if there's a Biden administration. He's got his own podcast called Yang Speaks. Everybody's got a podcast now. But I wanted to have him on right now because we've been going through the series about mobilizing the economy. This podcast is part of that four-part series, the final part. Um, Unbox, the series is called The Great Rebuild, and it's made possible here and there by Omidyar Network, which is a social impact venture that works to reimagine critical systems and the ideas that govern them and build more inclusive and equitable societies. My part of it, the part I wanted to do here, was about how do we remobilize the economy post-COVID? And so we've looked at the Green New Deal. We've looked at thinking about how to remobilize economies in general, going all the way back to the work of John Maynard Keynes. We've talked about what to do for children. 
And the question I had for Andrew is, is something like UBI and economic mobilization, is putting money into the hands of people, which to the extent Congress seems comfortable doing anything, it tends to be that, is that the right way to mobilize the economy? But we also talk about a lot of other things in here, um, from the right stance towards technology, to the importance of making government function differently and better, to the kinds of values that drove Andrew on the campaign. This ended up being a super fun conversation. You can find all the podcasts in the series, plus uh, pieces from the highlight, including a special issue coming in September at Vox.com slash the dash great dash rebuild. Again, Vox.com slash the dash great dash rebuild. But here with great pleasure is my podcast with Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Ezra. It's great to be here. So in the time since you've been here, you became a famous Democratic presidential candidate, went from long shot to one of the last six or seven standing in the debates. How has your life changed? My life has not changed as much as one might think, Ezra, because of COVID. I have been in with a family similar to to you and um, Annie and the little guy. Is it little guy, right? Little guy. 18 little months. Guy. I had that right. Good. Um, so Little shrieking, little shrieking guy. <laughs> yes, they do tend to shriek a lot. My, my first uh, was a real shrieker, and he remains so to this day. <laughs> And that was that was a while ago for me. <laughs> well, my my older is seven, so he's a still shrieky seven year old. But um, my life has been similar to many other Americans, where I've been in my house a whole lot, uh, been zooming a whole lot, and so I certainly feel grateful that I have the ability to contribute and help in a greater fashion than I, I would have months ago, and super indebted to everyone who supported my campaign for that. And no, no, no. Uh, you're I'm, giving I, you're giving me the you're giving me the political answer here. Don't don't give me that. Like you represent something for people now and you didn't before. You people put hopes in you and you hold those and you like how does that feel? You've become something you you weren't before. It's a, it's a it's a lot of it's a lot to hold on your shoulders. Wow, Ezra, you sound like you're speaking from experience. <laughs> Do you hold a lot of people's <laughs> hopes and dreams over there? You want to um Listen, I, I I got no gang, man. I well, I, I I do genuinely feel grateful every day to to the Yang Gang, and I do feel this uh, responsibility to use whatever platform or, or power I have to help people. So we we've been putting money to people's hands because everyone knows Andrew Yang is all about giving money to people. So uh, we've distributed eight million dollars plus in direct economic relief in increments of between two hundred fifty to a thousand dollars. In some cases, up to three thousand dollars, like a thousand a month over three months. So that's been a real focus. Uh, been helping down ballot candidates. This is all getting political again, Ezra. I apologize. Uh, so, I mean, I, I genuinely have felt a ton of responsibility to do as much good as I can because there, there's so much suffering and pain and anguish right now in the country, and I feel like I'm one of the relatively few people who might be able to help. We're going to talk a lot about UBI in this conversation, as people might expect and giving people money and how that might remobilize America. But I want to talk about something from your presidential campaign that I was reflecting on. When you began the run, and you and I have known each other a long time, way before you ran for president. But when you you began the run, I understood it as a campaign based on ideas that you thought should be in the national conversation and weren't. And, and then what surprised me about the campaign, the way it played out, was how much it emphasized, you emphasized, an approach to politics, a way of talking to each other, a way of talking about each other that felt different. And, and I'd like to hear your thinking there, how your thinking evolved during the campaign on, on political persuasion and what 
interpersonal values were missing in politics that you felt able and felt some resonance from bringing into the into the race? Ezra, I have to say, it was a real uh, surprise to me uh, where when I showed up on the scene, I thought I would be received and perceived as to the left of Bernie, where I thought that uh, people would say, even Bernie didn't go so far as to say, give everyone money. <laughs> like, like Bernie, stop short of that. And that that I, I was somehow going to be the most progressive seeming candidate. And I used to joke that I was going to be like Bernie, but younger and more Asian. But that that's not how I was received at all. Uh, I was received actually as this re- uh, alignment type figure where I was talking in terms that other candidates were not. And what's funny is for me, it was just the way I communicate. <laughs> so people listening to this can take that for what it is. Um, but I, I was arguing from facts and figures and my concern about the fact that we'd eliminated 5 million manufacturing jobs, 4 million due to automation, primarily in the swing states that decided the 2016 election Uh, And just by my talking the way I talk, it ended up being a different approach to politics that some people got excited about. So that was something I did not anticipate. uh, And I did end up learning from it and adapting to it. Uh, And I I learned that there are a lot of people that do want us to approach politics in a different way than we have been over the last number of years. So this is a weird thing to tell somebody, but I don't think that's actually what it was for you. And and you and, and maybe I'm wrong on this, <laughs> really? but but as as somebody who also built some career on being good at communicating in facts and figures, and also in the aesthetic of communicating in facts and figures, right? I didn't have a math pin, but wonk blog and charts, and you know, there, there's both the reality of it, which you try to try to do in a real substantive way, and also the the signal of it. There are other people who did that too. I mean, Elizabeth Warren is a very facts and figures oriented candidate. What seemed to me to to resonate. Uh, around you with folks that I did not expect was that you really never seemed to dislike anybody on the campaign trail. You didn't dislike people who didn't agree with you. You didn't dislike people who insulted you. You didn't dislike the people you were running against. You spoke um, fondly and with a lot of empathy um, of, of towards people on the other side. The way you framed your 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 policies had that dimension. You're talking about the Bernie Sanders and imagining yourself to the left of him. But one way people experience politics isn't just ideological, it's also on this axis of confrontationalness. And you had a pretty um, distinctive like left policy agenda, but on the confrontational axis, you were way down, right? You would talk to people Democrats would rarely talk to, go on programs they would rarely go on. And and even now on Twitter, I think you very self-consciously cultivate a very nice persona in a very unnice space. And I'd like to hear a bit about how you, you you think about that, because whether it was all authentic, I think there's at least some recognition that it has power now. And given that it's a pretty basic thing, I think it probably had more power than you would have expected or certainly than I would have expected. Wow, Ezra, I, I hadn't thought of it in, in those terms. But I mean, you've known me for a while, so you know that uh, the nice thing is a complete facade <laughs> that, that I'm actually... Naturally, very bitter. Um, now, it, it's it's the case that I like most Americans and that I think that there have been massive problems that have been built up over decades and decades. And you wrote a book on polarization and why we're polarized. And 
I, I feel like people have gotten driven into different corners and pitted against each other in a way that's unproductive. I naturally don't get angry at people that disagree with me. I kind of expect a degree of political uh, asynchrony because, you know, it's like not like someone's going to believe everything you believe. And one of the things that I did find running for president was that the media would often try and goad me into conflict. <laughs> it would be like, this person said this. What do you think about that? And and the dynamic was supposed to foment an expression of outrage. And then I would say something that seemed to me to be like the, the natural reaction. But I, I just think that the outrage cycle is very, very negative. Uh, and I think a lot of Americans, including me, are very tired of it. But I, I can genuinely say it wasn't really a strategy on my part, and it's not a strategy now, except insofar as when I'm putting out a message, I just find it more productive for me to be positive than for me to throw a rock at somebody. It, it always struck me, too, that it reflected in part the media you came up through. So I think when most Democrats run for president, they think about getting coverage on you know, MSNBC and in, in Democratic or liberal-aligned publications, which have, which tend to reward a more confrontational approach, and that's true also for for centrist publications, right? You 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 have a great story on your blog about being at an early Iowa event, and like all the reporters are there to hear Michael Avenatti, including like the centrist reporters who just want conflict. But you came up. I mean, you were on my on this podcast pretty early in your campaign, but you did Joe Rogan's podcast, my friend Sam Harris. Um, you were on like a lot of YouTube World things. And that's a that's a it's a very political space, and sometimes it can be even an angry space. But it's it's like a more mixed space. You had like a lot of fans on Reddit and 4chan, and that struck me as uh, like informing your approach way through that that those are different worlds to talk to, where people have different political concerns, and it always struck me that you ended up representing a slightly less polarized media in what ended up working for you and what you then were rewarded for saying and, and representing in politics. Ezra, I genuinely went where they would have me, <laughs> I guess, where initially <laughs> the, like the, the uh, MSNBCs and CNNs um, uh, and, you know, centrist publications were not very excited to have me on, frankly. So if you were me and you were like, who wants to talk to me? <laughs> like, hey, do you want to talk to me? It's one reason I'm grateful to you, because you had me on when others were not. And so I'm grateful to you. And I've always seen you as a very, very smart, fact-driven purveyor of what you regard as truth, you know? And and it's, you know, it's, it's one reason I appreciate you in this conversation so much. And I did not get that vibe <laughs> from, from, from some other outlets and, and journalists. And so, I, you know, it, it really was a necessity being the mother of invention where I would talk to people that would have me on. Um, and a lot of those folks were YouTubers and and podcasters and folks who didn't have a cable network behind them. Yeah, it's a uh, and it, it worked. I mean, I, I want to get to UBI, so we won't spend all, all, all time looking retrospective of your campaign. But but it did just strike me as I thought you and Pete Buttigieg did the best job of this. And you did somewhat differently, right? I don't think Pete Buttigieg would have gone on Ben Shapiro's show and and, and debated circumcision. <laughs> like that wasn't his vibe. But there was a like Joe Biden, for his virtues, has a very 
old media view of politics and also doesn't do that much media. And a lot of Democrats who'd come up through through the ranks for a long time, like they saw media very much, I would call it the way it was in 2005. And now there's this burbling, fractured, and it can be very polarized, but it also can be very mixed up in a way that can be useful world out there. And that if you're, a lot of it has much more audience than people, um, I think, in the mainstream media recognize. You know what some of these folks on YouTube were able to command is in the millions. It, um, it 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 rivals the cable networks, but it doesn't have like the mainstream establishment uh, respect that, say, a, a cable network does, and so it gets ignored. But it's no worse a way to 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 reach people. And I think Reddit had that quality for you too. Like you were very big on. I was just on Reddit yesterday, and you're involved, I guess, in some California data privacy initiative, and it had twenty three thousand upvotes just noting that you were part of it. So these are these are pretty different worlds. And 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 I wonder how much you think the Democratic Party or just traditional politi- politicians in general are missing them and and leaving these worlds unspoken to. Well, I, this to me is uh, something we should talk about more, Ezra, because I think the shifting media landscape is going to impact politics very dramatically. And some folks are going to be late to it. Like you're on top of it just from that line of, of questioning. But if you look at the cable news audiences, um, you're looking at the low millions and it tends to be like the same 2 million people over and over again. And you're talking about a massive population of you know, tens of millions of voters. And so you hit it on the head where if you look at the audience of some of the biggest podcasts, uh, it goes into the millions. It is higher uh, than the cable newscasts. And the, the cable newscasts drive this media narrative bubble that then gets self-reinforcing. And then everyone looks out, out and says like, hey, aren't you concerned about whatever the heck we were concerned about yesterday. And meanwhile, like they're just listening to Joe Rogan or whomever, <laughs> you know, like that they they're getting a very different perspective and they're hearing about issues that are more relevant to them than uh, a lot of the DC oriented issues. The biggest example of that on the trail was impeachment. I don't think I got a single question about impeachment uh, the entire time. And then, and this was when he was actually getting impeached. <laughs> you know, so so th- there are different conversations happening, and it would be very beneficial for politicians generally, but Democrats in particular, to start trying to broaden their universe. Because what you don't want to do is just end up in a world where you're just talking to each other and then wondering why no one's listening to you. And and that's the danger. And one of the things that I like about these different worlds as somebody who I, I try to spend a certain amount of my media diet in subcultures that are not my main one, um, because I think it's important to know how their argumentative universes work and what they consider important and unimportant. And this, to me, was always a secret of your campaign that people didn't quite realize, uh, that politics, Washington politics, has developed a set of things that it considers like the questions of the day, the week, the month, the year. Um, so, you know, at, at a certain point, it's impeachment, which is very, very, it, it was important. Like, I ran an impeachment podcast, and I think it's important what was happening there. Um, but taxes, healthcare, I mean, these are these are real things. You might ask, like, how did this guy, Andrew Yang, get on Joe Rogan and some of these other shows? Because he doesn't allow just anybody on. Um, that's a big show. He has a lot of options about who comes on. And there's this whole world that is very uh, focused on AI risk and what that's going to do and how that's going to change things. And when you came up and wanted to move that up as a, an issue in politics, increase, like as a political scientist would say, increase its salience in politics, 
there was a, a, a world of people there for that because they were already having that conversation, but nobody in politics was. Like politics reflected the the set of issues that Washington thought was important and understood how to talk about. But it's not the only set of issues people care about. And so then there are these whole worlds that are really underserved in terms of their concerns. And like what always struck me as an interesting bypass you took into this was like the value of your campaign to me was it 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 elevated concerns that deserve more attention to politics than they typically de- get, not just solutions, but concerns. And you know that I have a different view on a lot of the AI economic risk than you do, or at least somewhat. But um but there's no doubt that it should be talked about. And so you went where people were talking about it. And I think there was a lot of surprise that so many people were so uh, were so concerned and so engaged on this and so ready for a, a candidate to try to say, no, this should be one of the 10 issues we talk about. Like, let's move something else out of the frame. Yeah, that's right, Ezra. Where if you talk to techies, they're much more concerned about AI. And as you know, the, the central argument of my campaign around automation than a lot of other Americans and they were happy to talk to a political figure who was talking about something that they'd been thinking about for months or years. And one of the funny byproducts of it all was that I ended up having conversations with people that didn't feel terribly political, if you know what I mean. It was like, look, like what's going on uh, with AI? Like, what should we be concerned about? Like, what what does that competitive landscape with China look like over time? Uh, and because of that, I ended up reaching audiences that generally did not consider themselves super political. And hopefully I did broaden the range of concerns that we should be looking at as a country. It wasn't very deliberate on my part. I mean, I just cared about what I cared about. <laughs> and uh, went to folks who also cared about it. But it is a sign how both DC and the media have this relationship where there's like a set of prescribed concerns that may or may not line up with the concerns around the country. Yezra Klancho will be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. 
One of the things that I think politics systematically underrates in importance and, and tends to be very bad at talking about is technological change just in general. How important it is, what is happening with it. We functionally live in a gerontocracy where um, I think Nancy Pelosi's 80, Trump is 74, Joe Biden is 77, um, Mitch McConnell is in the upper 70s. I think he might be 77. Like This is not the most tech-forward <laughs> leadership uh, group you could possibly imagine. And so a lot of what is changing in technology, which is really important, I think it gets underplayed. So let's have a little bit of a conversation there. AI, how has your thinking changed on it in the past few years compared to you know, two years ago or whatever it was when we talked. Do you think the landscape there has changed? Um, do you think there are things people should know that have happened? A lot of the things I w was concerned about have now come into full view because of the pandemic. A and you know that companies that were considering investing in AI and uh, robotic meat packers and the rest of it and uh, robot aisle cleaners in the grocery store, now those companies are accelerating the investments. And the example I use is that now if you get a Domino's pizza and a self-driving car, you're excited because you had less human contact, whereas before it seemed a little bit creepy. Um, same with the self-checkout aisle. And if you look at AI, there's this new release that now uh, can do a lot of writing and basic summaries on a level that's indistinguishable from human journalists. You're talking here about OpenAI's GPT-3, yeah? Yeah, yeah, OpenAI's uh, GPT-3. Yeah, so if people haven't heard of this, I'm going to put in show notes. Uh, my colleague Kelsey Piper did a great piece on this, but it's surreal. Let me put it that way. What, what it's able to do in terms of language processing is wild. And two years ago, if you'd asked me, hey, is software going to get to this point? I would say, I would have said yes. Um, but then you could still argue over it. You know what I mean? Uh, and now two years uh, later, it's here. And you can see the commercial potential of this technology. One of the reasons why I was so concerned about the impact of AI on our labor force, Ezra, is that I know how many, frankly, inefficient jobs there are in a lot of these major companies, where if you gobble up another company and you have two different systems, you might keep dozens, even hundreds of folks around just to keep the systems talking to each other. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like this, there's, there's a lot of weird stuff when you get into the bowels of some of these organizations. Uh, and I knew that over time, AI could end up making a lot of those types of jobs less and less central. The arguments about human labor and AI, they tend to be non-market driven and kind of romantic. You'd be like, oh, you know, uh, like you can never replace a human who does what Ezra does or <laughs> what Andrew does or, or whatnot. But, you know, a, a lot of our work is more replaceable than we like to think. And what's funny is if you ask Americans about this, they will actually say a majority of other people's jobs are automatable and subject to technological replacement. And then if you ask them about their own job, the vast majority will say, not my job. Uh, you know, that's just the way we're wired. It's why I'm fleeing to the high ground of podcasting. I mean, they're going to come for the columnists way before they come for the podcasters. It's much, much Definitely. harder, to, much harder for AI to have a good conversation than for it to just write up a write up a take on the GDP report. <laughs> anyone, anyone like us, we're already at the top of the pyramid. You know what I mean? Like, if you have a podcast with a significant audience, you're you're you've already made it to a certain point. Like, and if you think about all the folks who are coming of age right now, like the younger versions of us who are graduating from college right now, it's like you know, uh, it, it's. We're, the winner-take-all economy 
applies in many spaces, including uh, the ones that you and I occupy. Oh, absolutely. So I, I have some slightly different views on how many jobs are automatable and 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 even what the coronavirus uh, is going to do uh, to the desire for human contact. I think in many ways you're seeing how irreplaceable at least parts of it are, um, how much people want it. But uh, people can listen to our previous show to, to, to hear our, our, our views on that. What I, what I do want to dig into here is something that, that, that you were hitting, which I, where I do think it's really true, which is that we are going to see and are seeing a bunch of jobs get automated in a shock-like way because people need to find ways, at least in the near future, to do things with less human contact between human beings. And we're seeing this moment that is a very deep reminder that people don't have control over their economic fortunes, that all of a sudden a pandemic virus or something uh, technological advance could happen in your industry that, that that lays you off or that destroys the economy in your town. And so you really get into, I think, your argument now for, for UBI, um, which AI, coronavirus, like these things begin to almost operate as like metaphors for just a shock and what happens to people during a shock. And do you want to leave it up to Congress to argue about expanding UI benefits during a shock? So... There's been a lot of movement, actually, in the Andrew Yang direction, or as I often like to think about it, the Annie Lowry direction, <laughs> towards just giving people money um, during this uh, during this pandemic. And that's been a real policy shift. That is not how we've done things during past crises. So I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about why you think that's happened and what you think we can learn from its performance so far. I am very happy for it to be the Annie Lowry direction. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and certainly, you know, I, I'm thrilled about anyone who gets on board. Doesn't matter uh, why or what you call it. You know that there are now dozens of mayors around the country who are championing guaranteed income. Michael Tubbs, the the original, but there are now dozens of folks, Keisha Lance Bottoms, uh, Eric Garcetti, and around the, the country who are committed to universal basic income pilots. And the reason, Ezra, is that now is just common sense, where you look around and you see that there are tens of millions of Americans who've gotten shoved out of the labor force because we don't need as many bartenders, airline attendants, security guards, ushers, personal trainers, you name it. Like There's so many jobs that required physical proximity that now just don't make sense. And like you said, it's not no one's fault. And so then you look around and say, how are we going to get economic resources into the hands of these millions of people? And cash relief is the only sensible solution. And $1,200 in April uh, going out had a really positive effect on many households and on propping up our economy. But we need to make that regular, recurring, predictable. We've been living off of the first CARES Act. But then now that benefits have elapsed, you're going to see distress and disintegration pick up in many, many households and communities. And there really is no feasible way to help so many households manage this except for direct cash relief. And it's not just you, me, and Annie uh, and Mayor Tubbs. At this point, last I, I saw 76% of Americans are pro-cash relief during the pandemic, uh, and 55% are now pro-universal basic income. So it's no longer the magical Asian man making this case. <laughs> it's the majority of Americans realize it's common sense and something we need to do. So there's a big jump between using cash transfer for relief, which is what we've seen during the pandemic. And as you say, is already uh, is Republicans already moved into a stance of opposition on it, even though the pandemic is ongoing, and moving to a basic income floor. And 
right in the middle of that jump is this argument that Republicans are now making on the UI, on the unemployment insurance, why they won't extend the, the $600, which is that if people can get paid and can support themselves in their lives without working, they won't work. And the point of American economic policy should be getting as many people to work as we can, no matter what, no matter what job they have to take. And so what is your argument to them? What is your argument to the Republicans who say, look, relief is fine, but we do not want to be paying people not to work because we want people working? I would agree and say the last thing you want to do is tie economic relief to job status or employment status. So if you put cash into someone's hands and say you can have this cash unless you start working, uh, then it actually is a detriment to them going back out there as quickly as possible in some cases. I mean, most people will still just be panicking until they find a job. And so to me, this effect is overstated and overblown. Uh, but to the extent it exists, you are right now tying a lot of this cash to employment status. I would say make the cash unconditional and then you'll have a baseline. And if you go out and get that part-time job because it's not ready for, to be a full-time job because the bowling alley or the retail store is not at full uh, reopening yet, then you get to keep that money as opposed to right now saying, well, wait a minute, if I take this job, then I stop getting benefits. So the problem right now is our existing legacy infrastructure that ties the cash relief to not working. But but I think you're you're underselling what's happening there a little bit. It's not just legacy infrastructure. It is on one level, I would call it a value that people hold. On another level, I would call it a political argument people make. Uh, I think there are different ways to frame it. But there is a long-running belief in American politics that money should be tied to work. And you mentioned being to the left of Bernie Sanders. Uh, I remember in 2016, sometimes you would go to Bernie Sanders' homepage uh, and you would get this splash, right? Like the, the, the pop-up would be, nobody should work 40 hours a week and live in poverty. Which isn't nobody should live in poverty because we give them money not to live in poverty. It's that work should pay, right? The minimum wage should be higher. The EITC should be higher. And so that's a that's not just a, a thing you see on the right. It's a thing you see on the left. It's a, a view Joe Biden largely holds. Um, it's a view many liberals have have traditionally held that not only is it like a good thing to push people into labor force, but also politically, people just don't like the idea of folks getting something for nothing. They don't want to see their cousin or their neighbor laying about. And so I think that's the argument that how do you rebut that argument, the, the sort of more moral values argument, not just the, the, the technical argument? Uh, I, I think that argument is, uh, to one of the earlier points you made, just really, really out of date. You know, it, it harkens back to some 70s or 80s notion of employment where it, if you work for a company, they'll treat you right and give you benefits and you'll be able to, to live a fine middle class life in an era when most of the jobs that have been created are gig and contract and temp jobs. And they don't have benefits in many cases. Uh, it also doesn't include caregivers and stay-at-home parents like my wife, Evelyn, who's been at home for uh, a while, in part because one of our boys is autistic and was very, very in much in need of her time. So to, to me, this is not an argument that, frankly, like liberals and progressives should fall for, where it's like, oh, I mean, I, I'm I 100% agree with a statement that if you're working full-time in the United States of America, you should not be poor. Um, but I also think that my wife works harder than I do, um, you know, most every single day. And there are moms around the country who are in the same boat and they should not be poor either. Uh, and trying to define work as 
this anachronistic uh, show up to an office or factory 40 hours a week is missing the evolution of our economy that's been happening for decades. Why a UBI rather than a negative income tax? I'm a huge fan of a negative income tax. <laughs> and if, if that's where, where it knitted out, I'd be thrilled. I, I prefer a UBI for multiple reasons. I even think it's probably a better sell politically. But like the, the reasons why I prefer the UBI are that uh, it lowers the administrative burden because you don't need to figure out how much I made last year or this year. It removes any strange shenanigans in terms of trying to report a low income. Like if you have like a couple, for example, you could be like, how about I work and you don't work and we'll make it so you don't have any income and then we'll make it so you get some money the following year. Uh, and it alleviates a timing of payments issue because if your circumstances change from one year to the next, you're not likely to get your negative income tax immediately when you might need it immediately. And politically, I think it's more appealing to be able to say to everyone, look, you have intrinsic value. This is how much you get for being an American, a human being. Uh, but I would be thrilled with the negative income tax if, if that's where we wound up. I mean, if you alleviate and er- eradicate poverty, I am all for it. Do you think the U.S. government has a spending constraint on it? Could could we do a UBI and a Green New Deal and Medicare for all, and just put it on the put it on the national credit card? Or do we have limited resources and we have to make choices between them? Well, the argument I made on the trail, Ezra, which uh, I sense you'd agree with, is that we have a revenue problem in that the biggest winners in the 21st century economy are paying zero or near zero in taxes very often. And the most prominent example is Amazon, the trillion dollar company that paid zero in federal taxes last year. And so what I said to folks is like, look, if you have Amazon paying zero in taxes, you're going to have affordability problems for sure. And that if you harness the gains from the Amazons and Apples and Netflixes of the world, then you have a lot more revenue to work with very quickly. And then if you put that money into people's hands, that money does not disappear. It ends up going right back into the local economy in the form of car repairs and daycare expenses and uh, the occasional meal out. And those businesses all then create more opportunities and can create virtuous cycles uh, that help end up creating jobs and human well-being. But the, the big thing, Ezra, I think, is that we need to stop measuring our economy in terms of these narrow economic outputs, where if you try to figure out what's good for us by what's good for the stock market, then you're lost. Uh, and so if we... Wait, wait, wait. But, uh, but I'm going to hold you on this argument before you go into it, because I want to stay on the... I, I'm not measuring our economy by narrow economic outputs by GDP right here. I'm The, the question I'm asking is... Um, is can we afford it? Do I know. we need it, to it, pay for... Yeah, do we need to pay for things like this? And what I would say is I know the 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 corporate tax data on this stuff, you know, well enough to say that the list of things I just gave you, Medicare for all, UBI and Green New Deal, you could do everything that the folks I know who want to tax corporations and rich people quite a bit more think we should do. And in most cases I want to do those things too. And you wouldn't come near paying for this set of things. So so at some point you have to There is a question of whether or not these things are worth raising taxes for, which I often think they are, um, but taxes are are a hard sell. And then there's a question which you will sometimes hear people associate with modern monetary theory and other things arguing, which is it 
maybe we don't need to raise taxes for them. Now, a lot of MMTers would say you can't do things this big without raising taxes because you'll get inflation. So that's a that's an argument as well. Um, but but that's my question for you. Like, do we need to figure out how to pay for it? Because if we have to figure out how to pay for it, then it's going to be a um, it's going to force more choices and more sequencing. I agree with everything you just said, Ezra. And I also have seen the math. <laughs> and I, I, I know the price tags on some of the things we're talking about. But one of the things I said to folks on the trail was, what is the cost of not addressing climate change? Or what would the cost of climate change be if we just let it wreak havoc and ravage our country? And then people reflect on that for a second. Most of them don't know, you know the size of the economy pre-pandemic was $22 trillion or so. So if I throw that in there, then they say, well, climate change is going to cost us trillions of dollars and thousands of human lives if we were to do nothing. And so then you start thinking, okay, the cost of inaction is in the trillions. So then what is the benefit of our investing in climate change mitigation? Particularly if you start measuring how we're doing based upon how we are actually doing as human beings. Like if you have a group of people drinking unclean water or uh, having their town submerged, uh, you know, that, that might not show up in certain economic indicators, uh, but it ought to. So the the way I'd answer your question is to say that uh, we should not be thinking we can just do everything under the sun uh, in terms of putting it on the government's bottom line, but we can be much, much more aggressive than we currently are about making large-scale investments in our own future, in our infrastructure, addressing climate change, and putting universal basic income into our hands. Because in many cases, a lot of these investments will end up paying us back in both human ways and economic ways. Uh, and the the argument I'd make on the trail was that if you have universal basic income in people's hands, does that improve our educational outcomes? Does that improve our health outcomes? Does that reduce the cost of incarceration? Does that improve the ability of ex-convicts, uh, their ability to reintegrate into society. Like there are many, many things that we spend a ton of money on right now that we could reallocate or alleviate if we invested directly in our people. And that was what a lot of people were missing oftentimes is that the investments you and I are describing actually pay off and in many cases pay for themselves. So I couldn't agree more on the disastrously narrow way we think about investment and particularly on climate change. But that actually gets to, to to the core of the series that this podcast is part of about remobilizing the country. And on some level, we're not going to be able to do everything. And so one of the things that I think about, if I if it were up to me, what would happen first? I worry a lot about that long-term cost of climate change. I think people should take a look around at what coronavirus has done and then recognize that climate change could do that at much, much larger scale for much longer with an endless ratchet into worse and worse and worse outcomes. And so if you don't like this, maybe like, let's not let that happen. As we think about, or as the Joe Biden administration or any administration thinks about what to do first, there is going to be a tension between the government saying, hey, let's remobilize the economy to this purpose, say a Green New Deal and climate change, or let's you know, just let's get money into people's hands. Let's try to give people demand side stimulus. Let's mobilize around things like cash transfer payments. As somebody who's been in the, the UBI game for a long time, but also I think takes climate change pretty seriously and takes preparing for the future pretty seriously, what would you like to see happen first? I think we should be 
investing in people immediately because I'm terrified as to what's happening in households and families around the country right now, Ezra, where, no, it's a stressful time for me and Evelyn and my kids. I'm seeing my kids suffer somewhat for the fact they just don't see other kids. And I feel like we're very, very fortunate on the high side. If you look at the mental health statistics right now, they're staggering in terms of depression, use of the crisis text line. Like there's just a lot of pain right now. Uh, And so the first thing we have to do is just make sure people can put food on the table and keep a roof over their head and not have mass evictions and the rest of it. Uh, And so there are the ways, structural ways that you can do that by, for example, continuing an eviction moratorium. But to me, that the, those are temporary measures in a way that putting cash into people's hands would be more direct. Obviously, in my case, it would be in perpetuity. And I think you would see a lot of folks have their heads up very, very quickly. I also think that having people be able to meet their basic needs is an accelerant for addressing climate change. Because if you have everyone in a position where they have to do whatever the cheapest thing is, and they have no other choice, and then you you um, ask them to change their habits in some way or care about climate change even, it's actually much more difficult. The climate change investment, and it's related to this human well-being question, we just need to create jobs in any way we can. Uh, I mean, the, the labor market is in such a disastrous condition. And so if you can tie that to infrastructure, solar panels, Green New Deal, like things that help us modernize, then I am all for it. But you shouldn't stop there. Like, you, you should say, look, over like, if, if there's anything we can do to get people um, into some kind of productive mindset or environment, then we should just do it. And, and this is one thing where I think it's very time sensitive. Uh, I'm hopeful that Joe and Kamala decide to go big immediately. I always find that in politics, there's a, like an allergy to this prioritization conversation, because on some level, of course, you should do everything. Uh, like, you can and everything you need. And in my experience watching the way administrations go, that ends up being a recipe for neglecting long-term problems. So there's always a set of immediate crises um, right now more than at most times, but but always there's things people can feel in the moment. And the endless problem of climate change is that as much as we can occasionally feel it in the moment. Um, if I walk outside of my door right now, uh, I will breathe in smoke uh, because California is now on fire three months of every single year. As much as there are places where people can feel it or can argue that they're feeling it, they don't feel it in the way and it cannot be as tightly coupled with the pain they have as coronavirus, as losing a job, as losing health insurance. And so we always do the the, the stuff that is right now, the stuff that politicians think they're going to be, uh, that will benefit them in the next election because people feel it right now first. And then by the time you've done that and had those vicious battles and exhausted your political capital and made people take hard votes and had the Chamber of Commerce spend $250 million against you, that long-term stuff you wanted to do is just gone. And so I think one of the really hard questions for uh, a Biden administration is going to be, whether or not they come in and try to act first on something longer term like climate change uh, at a moment maybe when it does have a short term power because of the remobilizing job creating dimension of it, or whether they go to uh, relief and other things like that first. Um, because if they do that, it always takes longer than you think. And, and, and you might end on the other side of it without the political capital to do, to do the other things you want. Like, How do you think about the political strategy of that? I appreciate what you're saying, Ezra, and I think the emphasis has to be jobs, jobs, jobs. And you can get a lot of stuff done 
while you're just talking about jobs. You can put cash into people's hands and say, this will be good for local businesses, which it will be. Uh, you can hire thousands of people to go to our forest lands and start actually trying to manage the tinderbox that a lot of our forests have become. Because when I looked at the numbers, I think we effectively manage less than 10% of our forest right now because the U.S. Forest Service has not been properly invested in. And so Joe and Kamala can say, you know what we need? Hundreds, even thousands of uh, people in the Forest Service because we're trying to create jobs. Like creating jobs can seem universal and nonpartisan in a really effective way. And it is so vital because if someone's out of the workforce for a while, they then tend to drop out and atrophy uh, the human impact can result in depression, substance abuse, uh, self-harm, child abuse, like uh, like all sorts of just really, really nasty stuff. And everyone knows that, jo- you know, it's like you like Republicans also should get on board uh, with programs if you pitch it as jobs, jobs, jobs. And hopefully you can use the jobs related pitch to try and accomplish things around climate change. One of the things that has often appealed to people about UBI has, I think, created a false sense that conservatives support UBI when oftentimes, if you look into those proposals, they they collapse the rest of the states that can do UBI, which I think is not generally what, what you and a lot of progressives support. But something that people like about it, and cash transfer in general, is that it is a way of getting around the inefficiencies and lack of capacity of the state. And I mean, you see this right now with how much trouble state governments are having doing UI. You see it with the complexity, particularly the rollout of Obamacare, but but of Obamacare in general. It is hard to make the federal government work. And doing things where the federal government has to do a lot of complicated things, it's even harder. And there's possibility for corruption and for self-dealing and and, and all the stuff you read about in the papers. And meanwhile, Social Security is, is a program that works really well. And so there's an, a, an appeal to, to going in that direction. I'm curious, as you were on the trail and as you've thought about this, and somebody coming from a background that was often very concerned with efficiency in in the private sector, how you think about that problem, the deep lack of trust Americans often have in the federal government to do hard things, and the more often than I think a lot of progressives would like to admit, times when both state and federal government prove that mistrust had validity. Like how do how should a democratic administration think about and address that fundamental failure and uh, political problem? This was one of the big elements uh, of my pitch to folks, Ezra, which is uh, I said, look, you know, a lot of people are not that confident in our government's ability to take resources and deliver value to you, to us, in a way that you'll actually feel and be able to utilize every single day. But if it's in the form of cash in your hands, um, then you'll be able to utilize it in a way that you know, like benefits you the most, like you can solve your own problems. And there were a lot of folks who were not traditional Dems who were very, very sympathetic to that line of thought, which I, I happen to believe and agree with. And you talk about healthcare.gov. Um, you know, I was looking into the uh, rollout, which we all remember <laughs> in 2013. Ooh, boy, do I remember that rollout. Yeah, no, it's painful, you know, and, and like you look at it and it, it's not exactly inspiring confidence uh, in folks. Um, and you have to take that to heart. Like if you're a Democrat and progressive, uh, which I, I consider um, myself, you have to have 
ambition as to what government can do, but also a sense of reality as to how government can deliver that value to folks. And if the government puts cash into people's hands, it's going to produce so much value and also increased confidence in government among Americans, where you look up and say, well, the government got this right, you know, like this cash certainly helped me a lot. And like I then turn around and got groceries or got my kid, uh, you know, a tutoring session or whatever the heck it was. And that becomes a very, very powerful glue to help knit us back together instead of just constantly saying, don't worry, this stuff's happening um, and you should appreciate that it's happening because I'm telling you about it. Instead, <laughs> you know, it's something that they'll uh, see in their bank account every month. Uh, it, it's just a very, very different experience that I think can actually bring the country together in a powerful way. My friend Tyler Cowan, who's an economist at Georgia Mason University, has a great podcast called Conversations with Tyler. I think one would describe him as a libertarian-leaning economist, but he's a very idiosyncratic political thinker. Over the past year, he's made this argument for what he calls state capacity libertarianism, which is, a, a I think it's a little bit of a strange idea in that he's arguing that libertarians should or need to move in a direction of worrying more about what the state can deliver than just about how to take the state apart, which I think... Uh, for obvious reasons, has some has some issues inside the Libertarian Coalition. But I've been thinking about state capacity progressivism because I think people assume that like all progressivism is focused on state capacity. And in my experience, it isn't at all. The progressives give very, very little thought to the capacity of the state to accomplish their goals. And this goes from how policymaking happens. It's uh, like Everybody knows I am obsessive on the topic of the filibuster because if you don't do something about that, you can't pass any of the legislation, not literally any, but a lot of the legislation we're talking about is just dead letter, the way the federal government is structured, the way elections happen, but then also within the government itself, how procurement works, um, how regulatory feedback works. I mean, there's a million things that are really hard and over time have come to work quite badly. And I think that progressives overestimate how well the government is actually working right now, or at least how well it would work if they controlled it, and that it would be good. Um, I take the point you're making here about a policy feedback cycle where, say, a relief payment creates a sense that the government can actually help you, and so you should trust the government to do more, and maybe you build up the ladder that way. But I also just wish I heard more from Democrats in power about how you're actually going to make the government work, how it's going to be able to absorb technology faster, how you're going to make it so that Congress when you have power, can actually return and revisit legislation that can work a little bit better, how you're going to make things just move a bit quicker, that we've gotten so trapped in this government good or bad argument that you end up having a lot less focus than I think you need, given the size and complexity of particularly progressive ambitions for government on how the government works and what do you do when it's not working? How do you fix that? How do you identify it? How do you surface it? I think it has shown in our coronavirus response really poorly. Ezra, I cannot tell you how much I agree with what you just said. It is so important. Do you have like a name for this school of thought right now? Because we need it really badly. There, There's just like this entire government, good government, bad uh, argument. And instead, what Americans hunger for is smart, effective government. You know, we can see that government has become less effective, certainly at the congressional level, very obviously. Um, but also in other aspects, and no one's having the right conversation around that. So do you have like a name for this concern and a school of thought? Because I am 100% with you and I've been thinking about the, the exact same thing. 
I, I, I'm, I'll think of naming. I mean, I feel like you should give Tyler Cowens. I can't believe that the term state capacity libertarianism took off. So maybe state capacity progressivism will too. But I'll, I'll just say, as on my soapbox here for a minute, this is why it infuriates me to see Democrats, although this appears to me to be changing a bit now, but be so lackadaisical on the filibuster. Because what you're basically saying there is as the party that tells people government can work, you don't care that it doesn't. As a party that goes out in elections and promises people all these amazing things you're going to do, you don't care that you're actually going to fail them or you don't care enough to do anything about it. You, you are more concerned about esoteric and at this point what everybody agrees are unbelievably misused um, old rules of the Senate than about delivering on all these crises, many of them literally life and death, that you've promised people you'll do something about. And so it just, you know, what, whatever the name for it, I would think it would actually just be like what being a progressive or a Democrat is about. Like a precondition to wanting to do all these things through the government is making sure the government can do things in the first place. I mean, I saw this Mark Andreessen piece a while back that got a lot of attention, the venture capitalist called Why We Can't Build, um, which is interesting. And I wrote this response to it, which is simply that a lot of why we can't build is that the government and institutions can't operate, right? Like the, it, you need to take an institutional perspective. And I am really struck by how much Democrats, uh, uh, elected Democrats here, do not believe what they say. They do not believe that the problems they are facing are as bad as they say on the stump. And I'm talking here mainly for Senate Democrats, because if they did, if they did believe this was all so important, they would get rid of the, they filibuster, would get rid of the filibuster and do a million yes. other things that would make government work better, procurement reform, all these different things. Like if you care about things, you figure out how to make it work. If you care about talking about things and you don't worry about that um, operational and implementation side so much. Ezra, this is my new mission in life, which is to try and fix the mechanics of our government so it can actually deliver to us. Because check it out, I ran for president uh, and, you know, you keep getting goaded, like you said, into making these very, very grand statements. Uh, and then you start reflecting. And I had this reflection. You can say whatever you will about me on it. But I had the reflection where I was like, oh, my gosh, like if I get into D.C., I need to deliver these things. <laughs> you know, what I mean, like, 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 what's the point of making these arguments if you're accepting a government that couldn't deliver on them anyway? Uh, and so you need to get rid of the filibuster. You need to have uh, the operating system of government get refreshed and updated. You you may not agree with this. Uh, but I'm for term limits in part for this reason, like the reason you described, where you have this gerontocracy, the average member of Congress is 62, I believe. They don't understand what's happening in most of the country. And the fact is their incentives are not tied to whether we succeed or fail anymore, because as long as they know they can't get challenged in their district, which a lot of them can't be because it's a safe district and you know, you've got like a seven digit cash advantage to start with, then they can actually let us sink further into the mud and keep their jobs. And they know that. Uh, and so the government failures that we're talking about, like I'm very, very passionate now about trying to actually get in and fix the mechanics so that our government can function. And that that's democracy reform. That's legislative changes like you're describing. That's in my mind, term limits. And I even have a clever way that we can pass term limits. You say, look, everyone, let's pass term limits, but current legislators are exempt. And that way, it's no skin off your back. <laughs> it's going to be the, the generation after you. But at least this way, we can look forward to legislators that actually are just trying to get stuff done and then go home as opposed to crouching in D.C. for decades at a time. 
I, I'm not a term limits fan for reason I've, I've argued on the show, but I'm not going to I'm not going to get us in that morass. Um, but I, I think what you're saying in general here is is really important. And I. I just remember watching 2000 Democratic presidential debates um, and you lived through them in a much more intense way than I did. And just thinking as people argued over like minute questions of like this Medicare for all plan or that Medicare for most plan or, or, you know, like this gun control plan that won't pass or that gun control plan that won't pass, that it was just a fantasy land debate because until there was agreement, even just among Democrats, right, who still didn't even have control of the Senate, right, the, the, the two questions that mattered or the three maybe, is like, if a Democrat wins the White House, the two next questions that matter for a governing agenda is, did Democrats win Congress? And did Senate Democrats do something about the filibuster? And if the answer to either of those questions was no, then virtually everything else that got talked about was gone. Um, Not literally everything else. Some stuff you could do the budget reconciliation in a complicated way that um, makes legislation a lot worse than it would otherwise be. So it's not a great alternative, but there's some stuff you could do that way. But all the stuff about democracy reform, gun control, like everything that isn't an executive um, uh, order or a foreign policy decision is gone. And it would get like almost no discussion. And it again, it all just struck me sometimes as a very... I would call it unserious, but it's actually not harsh enough. It was a deceptive way of doing politics. It, it, it seemed like a bizarre theater performance. Uh, and this is from someone who is part of it. And I would react to it being like, wow, like these are our lines. Like what's going on? <laughs> like what, what are the stage directions? Uh, and, and so Ezra, I've got a name for this, uh, like the mechanics you're talking about in this movement. It's like the let's get real, uh, you know, like let's stop playing in fantasy land and say like, okay, like what? Can we actually get done? What are the rules we need to change to get it done? Who do we need? Because so much of our politics is degenerating into value statements. It's one reason why I think I seemed different (laughs) is because people kept sticking a mic in my face and saying like, make a value statement, make a value statement. (laughs) I was, it's like, I'm just trying to to solve problems. Like the the main problem I want to solve is that people are poor for no reason. uh, And that if we we change that, we change a lot of other things very positively, including, I believe, our fractured politics, in, at least in some, some measure. But you're, like the let's get real stuff, I mean, you're right. Like if, if you have a filibuster, it doesn't matter if I change a couple seats here and there. Like, you, you know, you're never going to get to a threshold where you can pass the filibuster. There's nothing in the Constitution about a filibuster. It is just some weird, arcane, esoteric Senate rule that took on a life of its own. And so if you're willing to put that rule above uh, getting stuff done, then what are you doing there? Desert Clan Show will return after a quick message from our sponsors. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. 
I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. I want to talk about something else you you brought to the debates. It was always my favorite my favorite part of the Andrew Yang um, uh, like subplot of, of democratic debates, which was, and we've touched on this already, trying to inject questions of technology into them. Um, you often would do this when it came to climate change, talking about things like fourth generation nuclear, and, and it happened pretty often. And, and something I've been reflecting on, on on another track has been that a lot of the problems that I care most about solving, they have a huge technological dimension to them. Um, I care a lot about animal suffering, and by far the most uh, promising way to do something about that is plant and cell-based meat. I care a lot about climate change, and while I've had Saul Griffith on the show talking about how we could fix climate change without anything, any new technology being invented, there's just no doubt that given the level of mandate and adoption and take-up that we'll need, if we can invent some great new stuff, it would become a lot easier. AI often gets talked about in a dystopic way, but if we really could invent it, it could make life pretty amazing. I'm a big healthcare wonk. Um, I've talked, I've like spent a lot of my career on health insurance policy. But what the reason we care about health insurance is it can make you healthier. And what will make you healthier uh, to some degree is technological advances in things like how we fight cancer and you know d- d- handle gene therapies and, and other things. And one of the things that has struck me is that I don't think progressives in general have much of a theory of technology anymore. Um, I think that it's often talked about in this dystopic way. There's a lot of frustration at the billionaires who who own it. I often felt you sort of like oscillated between like a very scary story about AI and then also like a real interest in technology as a way of solving problems. And I'd love to just hear you reflect on that. Like what should, what do you think the political orientation to technology in general should be? I love where you are on this, Ezra. Like I, I think that ideally progressives are for progress. <laughs> and, and you know what is going to enable a ton of progress is technology. And one of the fun things about um, my campaign was I was making some very dark arguments about the impact of technology, which I completely believe. Uh, you know, like if you have autonomous trucks in the next, you know, I'll extend the timeline because I know you and I differ on this, but, but like, let, let's say like 20 years, you know, uh, like there'll be millions of folks who uh, used to drive a truck for a living who, you know, will need something else to do. So I like, I believe all of that wholeheartedly. Uh, but I also agree with you that if you're trying to make people smarter, healthier, mentally healthier, uh, trying to clean up our planet, uh, trying to feed people, 
in a way that doesn't brutalize animals. Uh, technology is a part of every single one of those solutions in a very central way. And uh, one of the dangers to me about a lot of our politics now is we're, we're each arguing for different brands of nostalgia. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, meanwhile, time only goes in one direction. You know, it's 2020. You're now out in California. Like I, I spent a, a lot of time there. And you go to some of the folks who are working on the future, and it is wild. Like some of the things that they're working on are very um, positive and inspirational. Uh, some of them are very depressing and, and dystopian. Um, but they're all packaged together. And we should not be a group of people or a party that also has our heads in the sand about the positive and negative changes that technology brings. Like we have to be the party that is hard-nosed and realistic, but also willing to embrace the technologies that could lead us to something that more closely resembles utopia than this current mess we're living. Uh, so I, I love what you just said, Ezra. Like, uh, you know, I completely agree. Like we need to be embracing these technologies at a much higher level. And I'm, I may be a part of that in this next administration if, um, you know, uh, if we succeed in getting Trump out of there. Wait, uh, I, I want to follow up on that tantalizing. I may be a part of that. Um, is there a job you've been talking about? Oh, so I've had just very, very general informal conversations with uh, uh, the Biden camp about trying to take on some sort of technology facing role, both some of the concerns that I campaigned on and trying to address them. And one thing we haven't talked about, but I'm very passionate about that you will be too in a few years is the effect of uh, social media and technology on our kids' mental health. Uh, you know, like right now you have massive levels of anxiety and depression among teenage girls in particular um, in order to make uh, certain companies like Facebook richer, which, you know, is not a good look. But our government is way behind the curve on these issues. And I've offered my help in trying to catch us up. And there's some interest uh, in taking me up on that. And so, so then to go back to this underlying question, you said something I thought that's worth picking up on about you talk to people in Silicon Valley and you go look at what they're doing and some of it is very utopian and some of it is very dystopian. And I've had probably some of the same conversations with even some of the same people you have. And what always strikes me is that it's not in most cases intrinsic to the technology which way that plays out. And oftentimes, it is actually about the way the government and both the rules of markets and, 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 and regulations, but also to some degree government implementation, taxation, et cetera, is going to interface with the technology that's going to decide whether it ends up being like utopian or dystopian. And so there sometimes seems to me to be a more obvious approach here, which is that I would say that it should be a more central priority, frankly, for both parties to use the government as a research and innovation accelerant. But then it also has to be a more central priority, again, hopefully for both parties, for the government to have views and to, to care about how the technology is rolled out, who has access to it, and also what rules it operates under. Um, AI is a, the most obvious example of this, just given the, the size of its potential impact. But there's a broad set of problems right now where you know, we could put a lot of money into, um, say, drug development, which we already do, and then 
insist on very different rules for, say, how patents work and how quickly things move to generic. Um, Bernie Sanders, I've always said this, one of my favorite healthcare policies of his going way back in his Senate career is this idea to create prizes, not patents, um, or at least a parallel track where we would create you know, prizes, say $5 billion if you can create a drug that does this thing. And then if you do it, you get the $5 billion and the drug is generic from the minute it goes forward. And so just like a much higher level of sophistication with both how to accelerate the advance of technology, but then also how to make sure its benefits are more broadly shared and its risks are attended to than we currently have um, w- w- would seem wise to me. Yeah, that it's spot on, Ezra. Uh, and right now, our government is out to lunch on most of these technology issues and we need to change it. You know, and I agree with you, this should be central for both parties because the rate of change is just getting faster and faster. We got rid of the Office of Technology Assessment in 1995, 25 years ago, uh, and we can all sense that. Well, there was no more technology. Oh, yeah. No, we invented everything. 95. <laughs> ended in 95. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's embarrassing, really. And we can all sense it. Like Everyone just has this collective groan when it comes to government and technology. And then again, you have something like healthcare.gov where you're like, oh, no, like they tried to make a website. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, it, I mean, I shouldn't laugh because it was freaking terrible. Um, well, so let me, let me go. Let me go in on the healthcare.gov thing for one second, because I did a lot of reporting on that and, and something that breaks my heart about what has happened since then. So I did a ton. I wrote a business week cover on this and like the federal government's procurement rules, what was encoded into the legislation and then um, just some of the ways the agencies work together, who they could hire, when they could hire, et cetera. It was all just built for disaster. And the Obama administration people just didn't, like very few people saw this coming clearly or they would have done something to stop it. But in the aftermath of that unbelievable catastrophe, they actually did a lot of really good things. They created this group 18F. They brought in a lot more software development talent and began using, and at least I don't think they ever got where they needed to go or anywhere near it on changing procurement, particularly procurement rules around software, which like you would never do procurement um, for software in in like the private industry, the way the federal government- It was like 1,800 started. pages of procurement rules. <laughs> It's wild. Um, and and then it also meant that the people who understood how to navigate the procurement process were not the best software developers. They were these massive consultancies that had built, that had like invested a lot in lawyers to navigate the procurement process. So anyway, there was a lot that was happening on that. The I would say the Obama administration in the aftermath of that catastrophe, which was on their lap, did a lot of really good things in terms of beginning to um, put C, you know put CTOs in the agencies and so on. Procurement did not go through Congress in the way I was hoping it would. And then it just got destroyed under Trump. I mean, whatever progress was being made and needed to be consolidated, like like the the world of 18F and things, like I'm I'm, I'm I still follow it somewhat, and it's been really bad. And I think that's one thing that is a little bit under um, like underrated as one of the disasters of this era. Like whatever modernization was happening in government just stopped, and we needed a lot more than was happening. But it's really a shame that we lost so much of the progress that had begun. I couldn't agree more. And that's something that we should try and rev up and invest in meaningfully. I looked into it too. Uh, the US Digital Service, which did come about uh, in the aftermath of healthcare.gov, it's still operating, but it's down to something like 180 people. And if you look at the scope of the federal workforce, I mean, that's yeah. that's not <laughs> that's not enough <laughs> to tell it there. And it's not empowered, right? Those people are not empowered. Yeah. And uh, so they're, they're often on short-term stints, but even within their constraints, they're projected to 
uh, saved something like $600 million uh, in government costs, and in part because of the procurement process you talked about. So I, I'm with you that healthcare.gov ended up leading to some real modernization efforts that have now stalled under Trump that hopefully we can get back to. So if you were helping to modernize government on technology in a, in a future administration, how, how would you think about that? Uh, where, where would you start? What would, what would be the kinds of things you would imagine doing? You would ramp up the United States Digital Service and empower it, to your point. And you and I both know that there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of very talented technologists, designers, coders who would help uh, government if they had a runway to do so and felt like they could actually be empowered as opposed to going and just sitting in meetings and getting their hands tied in red tape and bureaucracy and the rest of it. So instead of 180, you should have something like 10 to 20 times that number of folks uh, working to help implement some of the policies that folks are envisioning for us digitally. Uh, so that would be step one. You take what's been working and then you pour fuel on it. Uh, that the, the other thing I would be trying to do is um, I, I think that there should be some kind of West Coast base of operation in part as a talent enlistment move because there are a lot of techies that might not want to uproot their families and head to DC. And so you need to give them a, a place to reside and, and land. And then we need to have actual experts get into the guts of the social media companies and the apps because e- each of these companies uh, is its own thing. Like you, you can't really have one size fits all, for example, 20th century antitrust rules when it comes to you know, Facebook and Instagram and the rest of it. Though I do think that they should not have allowed them to acquire Instagram. Um, but that there, there are all of these features that are company specific that you need real expertise to try and get to the bottom of and see if you can curb the worst of the excesses. A lot of this conversation is operated in the like the implicit hypothetical that Joe Biden wins, because if he doesn't, most of the things we're talking about are not going to happen. But imagining the alternative path, what do you think a, a second Trump term would look like? It would be catastrophic, in my opinion, because we're, we're seeing the deterioration and disintegration of our way of life. Uh, and I, I don't see that reversing itself under Trump. I think with Joe and Kamala, it still will not reverse itself as if by magic. But there's at least a chance that we'll get enough of a consensus to invest trillions of dollars in jobs, infrastructure, economic relief, uh, healthcare, uh, climate change, mitigation, you name it. Like there's at least a chance. I mean, we have a multi-trillion dollar hole that's been blasted in our annual economy and, and tens of millions of us have gotten pushed to the side. Uh, and I said this in my DNC speech that, you know, we have to give ourselves a chance and we at least get a fighting chance with Joe and Kamala. So uh, hopefully they're our next president and vice president. You made a point during the Zoom call of former presidential candidates that, that I thought was really sharp about the ways in which Biden has this magical power, you said, to when he endorses something, it becomes mainstream, it becomes normalized. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what you meant by that? Yes, the magic of Joe Biden is anything he gets behind becomes the new reasonable. <laughs> and I really saw this when he proposed this $2 trillion climate change plan that if it had come out of Bernie's mouth, people would have <laughs> seen his extreme. But because it was Joe, it was like, oh, yeah, totally. That, that's the thing to do. Um, and, and I also want to give credit to David Axelrod, who said something similar to me that I then ended up parroting in that Zoom roundtable. 
but Joe's magic is that he has the potential to be a transformative figure in terms of policy uh, without ever actually coming across as transformative. It's a real, um, it's a real gift he has. <laughs> I want to ask you one more thing about a, a, a Trump second term. During the campaign, you talked a fair amount about Asian American discrimination. You wrote a Washington Post piece about feeling after the coronavirus that people were staring at you with suspicion in a way that hadn't been true before. There have been arguments about your approach to this in, in, in different ways. But when you listen to Trump during his convention speech, calling it the China virus and saying that, you know, reelect him and he'll make sure to make China pay, like how did that strike you personally? How did you how did you see that playing out? No, I felt like it was Trump reverting to his usual playbook of distracting from his own failures by calling attention to, in this case, what he was characterizing as the Kung flu and the China virus and the rest of it. Certainly as an Asian American, it's painful because there's always a sense that somehow your Americanness is in question and having Trump double down on that uh, is really corrosive for the country, but uh, it's painful for Asian Americans in particular. And and I do feel like our Americanness has been questioned uh, to a higher degree in the wake of the coronavirus than has been the case at really any point in my memory. The thing that I was reflecting on after it was when I started in politics as a journalist, sort of in the early 2000s, there was pre-9-11, but then very much post-9-11, this hunger for an enemy. And, you know, people talked about the clash of civilizations between, you know, the West and Islam. And and, and there was this real desire, uh, particularly among, I think, politicians who are comfortable in a Cold War consensus and a Cold War framework, to find the new external threat. And I'm not a big fan of what China, the way China withheld information on the coronavirus. Um, and I'm certainly not a fan of their movement towards authoritarianism, what they're doing to the Uyghurs. You can listen to past episodes of the show on this. But I'm really pretty scared of, and, and I think it would be very prominent in a second Trump term, this idea that you want to create an oppositional relationship between America and China in particular, but but arguably um, the uh, Asia more generally, that politicians who see their own political safety in creating uh, an enemy and creating fear in a world where we have to actually work together on threats like coronavirus, future pandemics, things like that. It's just, it's such the wrong lesson to me. And it's such a potentially dangerous thing that I feel like people don't actually talk about it that much because I think properly one's feelings towards China right now should be somewhat complicated, at least on a policy level, not towards people there. But nevertheless, very little would be as bad as America. And if people have not really like lived through this in Washington, I don't think you realize how quickly it can happen as a clash of civilizations narrative becoming the dominant for the dominant foreign policy framework now not towards the Middle East because like that didn't turn out to be what they needed it to be to keep um, driving American politics for decades and decades, but now towards China. Uh, I I agree with you on all fronts, Ezra. Well, you and I agree on a lot of things. Who knew? There's too much agreement in this conversation. It's a disaster. No, uh, yeah, no, we'll, we'll think of something to, to, to disagree on momentarily. But uh, a few things. Number one is, we all know that there's a military industrial complex that likes to keep us engaged, shall we say, in a way to spend the $700 billion. Uh, like a friend of mine who's an engineer at 
um, one of the big aeros- aerospace companies at the end of the Cold War said that they actually came together in a room and were like, all right, who's the next war going to be with? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's very dark. Like that, those are the kinds of things you um, uh, you hear from folks who are attached to the industry. And I agree with you that Trump's playbook is to find an enemy. And in, in this case, it's, it's going to naturally um, head towards China and the East uh, to disastrous consequences. And the goal should be to, and I agree, it's a very, very complex, fraught relationship with some massive, massive problems and concerns around the things you described, and then some, like their theft of our intellectual property, massive, massive problem. But you need to have some kind of relationship with China in order to guard against the next pandemic, to make progress on climate change, to make progress on data and AI concerns, to make progress on North Korea. Like, you know, like there, there is a much less safe world if you aren't in touch with the Chinese government to the point where you even can speak to them about something that's happening that uh, would concern American well-being. So that that's a reality. Uh, and unfortunately, we are getting to a point now where uh, where folks feel better served politically by trying to present like a different version of reality for purposes that, you know, may benefit them, their party, certain economic interests, but are really bad for all of us long term. Uh, And to your point, too, as someone who grew up in this country, you know, one of like the simmering fears you have as an Asian American is that like uh, if you wind up with like a U.S.-China geopolitical conflict that like uh, Asian Americans will end up being uh, caught right in the middle. Let me ask you one more question uh, that's political before we we wrap up. We'll have to wait for more disagreement for the next podcast, uh, which is as somebody who's a newcomer to the institutional Democratic Party, I think you've probably voted Democrat before, but, but, but being involved in it as a political actor, I think is newer to you. And came in from the outside of it. What is one mistake you wish Democrats would stop making a habit or idea that you that you would advise them to drop? Like, what is one way you'd like to change the Democratic Party? Wow, Ezra, I like this question. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's been uh, a real learning journey for me. Uh, I said this in another context, but I, I think Democrats need to figure out why it is that many working class Americans do not feel like we are fighting for them or we stand for them. And I ran into this all the time on the trail, like a waitress or a truck driver or a retail clerk. Um, when they found out I was a Democrat, like it's like I had said a dirty word. And I thought to myself, well, how was this? Like, you know, you're a trucker, waitress, uh, clerk. Like, shouldn't you be who we are fighting for? Like, shouldn't everything I'm talking about actually be appealing to you? And I think we've gotten caught in these exchanges that don't actually feel like they're relevant to um, those folks, uh, and we need to get better at it. You know, I, I think, unfortunately, Republicans have become more effective at communicating to certain groups of people than we have. And instead of saying, well, it's their fault, like we should do some soul searching and be like, why is it that they don't think that we're, we're speaking to them? Uh, and one of the things I said in another environment was that, like, we do not want to be characterized as the party of the educated elite uh, or folks who just live in big cities. Because if that's the case, then trying to reach folks that we're going to need to reach uh, around the country is going to be very, very difficult. So that that would be one big message I'd have. And and I I'm 
obviously like on board with a lot of the policy prescriptions that we have. I just want to try and present them to folks in a way that makes them feel, makes it feel like it's going to touch them and improve their lives every single day. And it doesn't seem as top down. It's more bottom up. And this goes back to your earlier point before about good, uh, you know, good government, um, not so good government. It's like, uh, like we, we can't get trapped in these abstractions. We have to try and translate it into the concrete and the direct. Um, and that includes getting to a point where we can be realistic about uh, how to deliver value to people. That's where we'll leave it. So now the final question is always, what are three books you've read that you'd recommend to the audience? So a few books uh, I've, I've read recently that I enjoyed and got allowed out of. Um, the first is Humankind by Rutger Bregman. Annie's probably read this one. <laughs> Rutger is one of the universal basic income. Not just, not just to Annie. Rutger was on the show a couple months ago now. What is time? But, uh, but yeah, it's a good book. Yeah, good stuff. So the great thing about humankind is it makes you question human nature itself. Like, uh, you know, are we as bad as a, a lot of, uh, you know, folks would have us believe? Maybe not. Uh, so that that book was edifying and enlightening. I really enjoyed Zucked by Roger McNamee. So if you care about what's going on with Facebook, it's uh, really easy to read narrative about one investor's uh skepticism towards Facebook that grew into more than skepticism. It actually started from non-skepticism to skepticism to uh, fear and activism. And so if you're concerned about Facebook, Zucked is a, a good book to read. And then the third thing I'd recommend, which is probably near and dear to your heart, Ezra, is They Do Not Represent Us by Lawrence Lessig. Uh, and it's about democracy reform and how our representative government may not be that representative. Uh, and he started with problems around campaign finance reform, which are fundamental. Uh, but then he goes into various structural reforms around the need for ranked choice voting and other things. And I'm a huge fan of Lawrence's argument. Uh, it's something that I, I believe we need to be paying more attention to. Andrew Yang, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. Always a pleasure. Appreciate you. Thank you to Andrew Yang for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. To Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing, the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.